Welcome to episode 131 of Kentucky History and Haunts. I'm your host, Jesse Bartholomew, and first and foremost, I want to take a second to thank my new supporters, Kendra, Christina, Mark, and Ryan. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. Now for the bad news. I had to get a new phone, like the new new one, and it has a USB-C port instead of the older kind, and I'm having trouble getting my microphone or any microphone to connect to it. So I'm still figuring that out. I'm not a tech person. I'm not trying to spend a ton of money. So we'll see what happens. But in the meantime, I didn't want to just stop producing content, especially in October. So I am recording on my phone. And some of you are probably cringing, but it is what it is. So please bear with me. I did see in some podcasting support groups that this new iPhone microphone is actually pretty good. And so we'll just see what happens. Um, But this episode will be a compilation of stories that I found from a few different places. Newspaper archives, of course, mostly from the Courier-Journal, the Lexington Leader, the Indianapolis Star, some stories from Kentucky Explorer Magazine, and a few from Tales of Kentucky Ghosts by William Linwood Montell, which you can order online if you're interested in getting a copy. I'm actually planning a little Kentucky-themed book giveaway very soon, I have ended up with several duplicates over the years, and it makes no sense having two copies of books laying around. So stay tuned for that. It will be limited to Louisville and the surrounding area because they are big and heavy and there are a lot of them, and shipping would be really expensive. Lately, I've been talking about a lot of stuff going on in the 1920s. Ever since I started that century ago in Kentucky series, I just kept finding such good stuff in the 1920s. I kind of haven't veered from that. But this first article is even older. It was published in the Lexington Leader in June of 1908. And the writing definitely reflects that. Parts of it are a little difficult to understand, especially because some of it is written in quotations and the words are not spelled correctly. So I may struggle to get through parts of it, but I loved the lore in this story. From haunted caves to a 500-year-old water moccasin to a 125-year-old fox. I should warn you, the article talks about, quote, Negroes being the ones who believe in these folktales in kind of a degrading way. It does come off a bit racist, but it's a 1908 story about rural Kentucky. So what do you expect? Also, I wanted to read it because the areas it's talking about are where a lot of my ancestors are from. The headline reads, Uncanny stories in the Kentucky Barrens revived by the Gunnis murders, human bones found in dark caverns, and the Negroes tell of those who have been swallowed up in Long Creek. Spooky tales are beginning to rise all over Kentucky as the details of the Mrs. Gunnis story become better known. In the corner groceries and the general crossroads stores, the old men of the towns and villages are recalling some of the more terrifying of the stories of their various sections and giving them fresh currency in the state. Perhaps no town in Kentucky is so clustered about with ghostly stories and traditions as is Glasgow in the county of Barron, situated on a spur of the Louisville and Nashville Railroad in southern Kentucky. This busy little town provides the market for five mountain counties, bursting with oil, mineral, tobacco, hemp, truck stock, and lumber. More farmers come to this market each county court day than in any town in Kentucky of the same type, and the tales which have been swapped in hotel 
or under the old maples of the courthouse yard, have recalled every gruesome incident or mystery since the town became a general store village in 1794, when the family of the Glasgow's dragged a wagon load over the barrens in a portion of the county and settled just this side of the fertile red loam and the heavy timbers that lip Beaver Creek. One of the favorite stories of the town is that of Long Creek in Allen County. Nary one of us Allen County men, said a butternut-jeaned man in the old courthouse yard at Glasgow the other day, has ever been able to learn about Long Creek. She begins, sir, all by herself, without seeming to draw enough beam from the Tennessee knobs to run her winding 25 miles to the bluff of Green River. But she ain't satisfied, sir, with being the longest creek in Kentucky. She ain't satisfied with that. She ain't content to run alongside the bluff into Green River and then go mixing up to the Ohio and down to the Gulf. No, sir, not Long Creek. She gets to the bluff and, instead of running alongside until it tumbles off into the green, Long Creek dives under that bluff and comes bubbling out on the other side and down the green she goes. As a result of this strange and uncanny method for Long Creek to have chosen a mouth hidden from the view of man, mystery has grown about Long Creek Bluff. Bodies of Negroes, of farmhands, and of women that have been missing in the hundred or so years that Allen and Barron counties have known are all believed to have been sucked up under that subterranean mouth by Long Creek and tossed into a witch's cavern, above where the accumulation of bones and skulls must by this time rival Laporte. Long Creek snakes are considered serpents of sagacity beyond the most shrewd reptilian dreams. One water moccasin has lived, the Negroes say, for 500 years under a stone on the Barren River on the Barron County line. An exploit of that snake, which the Negroes declare is invested with the spirit of a noted and cruel slave trader of the early Kentucky days, is related by Lewis Morris and Buford McCown of Glasgow. Both Morris and McCown are peculiar in the community of Glasgow as scrupulous truth-tellers, and the Negroes who have heard their stories swear that it is the deed of old Long Creek Moccasin, and he'll get Mars Morris and Mars Buford yet. They were fishing on Barren River by candlelight not so very long ago. McCown held in his hand a fish, dressing it for the meal at first sunrise. He held the fish before the candle so that the rays might fall on the game. Suddenly he felt a tug. The fish left his hand, and gliding out of the ray of the candle, he saw old Mars Moccasin with the fish in its mouth. McCown gave a cry and ran after the snake, which tried to back under a rock with the fish in its mouth. He tore the fish away from the snake and was cleaning it when Morris cried to him, Here he comes again. Old Mars Moccasin saw that he was betrayed, and when, when McCown fired a shot at him, he glided under his big flat rock, where he kept up all night an angry and a discontented hissing. Some of the Negroes cannot be dissuaded from the belief that they are all marked men if Old Mars Moccasin gets it into his head to want something to eat any while soon. This part of Kentucky is also honeycombed with limestone caves, all of which are said to be sections of Mammoth Cave, but of which there is no proof. There's not a man about Glasgow but who remembers the revolutionary old tradition that two backwoods lovers strayed into Mitchell Cave at Glasgow one night to escape the rain and unfriendly beasts and were never heard of again. Little boys who have fed on the lore of Diamond Dick and Jesse James 
organized searching parties in the cave periodically, and as frequently soil, velveteen, and corduroy, which all Barron County pirates wear, to the chagrin of their good Kentucky mothers. None of these bandits bold has advanced far into the cave, and just what inhabits its innermost recesses, and whether animals do not glare out of the hole at night, is the burden of many a song which the mammies croon to their little white charges about twinkle-eye time in the barrens. Horse Cave, some distance from Glasgow, from which the town took its name, has story after story of parties that were lost in the cavern and were devoured by bears or wolves. Cave City in Barron County has its limestone pit, about which charnel house traditions cluster, all of them, however, whitened with the bleach of decades and dripping with none of the fresh blood of modernity to rival Mrs. Gunnis. A farmer plowing in this rich red clay section of the state may strike his share on a rock that, picked, will open into a stalactite recess, bejeweled with the rock formations. In this storied part of Kentucky, also where night riders do no riding, and where the families live in the same houses for generations, the coulter blunts frequently against a flint arrowhead or tomahawk, relic of the days when the soft-footed Shawnees stole through the forest or fished on the shores of the barren and the green. The result of this air of romance and fancy has been to make the Negroes of Barren and its environs more superstitious than even those who have haunted manor houses to ponder upon, while many of the white folk believe in the tales of Long Creek. Old Mars Moccasin, the caves, the arrowheads, and the followers of Old Baldy, the fox who has for 125 years eluded hunters and hounds successfully and has 500 holes, are numbered by the heads of those who hunt the red fox in the Barron County autumn moonlights. You all are probably wondering who Mrs. Gunnis is, because she's mentioned a couple times in that article, but there's no explanation. So in 1908, this story came out, and I'll read a headline from the Lexington Leader. It says, Wholesale Murder, a clearinghouse for crime conducted by an Indiana woman a wealthy bachelor cut to pieces and buried. Mrs. Bell Gunnis may have escaped, reported burned to death with her children. Husbands die mysteriously. And that's all I'm going to give you because I think I'm going to turn it into an episode. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The next story is from the Indianapolis Star in January 1923, and it reads, A Chase and a Ghost. Two miles from Terre Haute, on a lonely road, stood an old deserted mansion, which folks said was haunted. One night last summer found me taking a shortcut through the fields, tearing my way through briars and brambles, and climbing a fence into a cemetery. The whispering pines casting their long wavering shadows among the tombstones 
did not ease my wildly beating heart. I fancied I saw the dead walking about. I was relieved on crawling through another fence into a field where cows complacently chewed their cuds. I shied around them and was making time when suddenly I felt something was following me. Glancing over my shoulder, I knew it. I started to run. My feet caught in the clover and I fell. But regaining my feet, I heard the bulls snorting and could almost feel its hot breath on my back. I must have broken the world's running record before I hit a barbed fence and fell over it into a deep ditch within sight of the haunted house. When I could get my breath and was sure the beast was gone, I peeped over the top of the ditch. Horrors! Straight toward me came the ghost with its flowing white garments and black socketless eyes. I was ready to faint when I heard the report of a gun and loud shouting. A strange sight met my gaze. Men were surrounding the house. The ghost, looking dejected and very much human, was handcuffed by two officers. I learned then that it was a man playing ghost to keep people away from the place where he was operating a still. In August 1923, there was a series of articles that came out about a haunted house in Louisville and how the neighbors went a little overboard when they found out about it. It starts on August 14th with an article that reads, Police are called to stop riot threatened by haunted house. Crowds besiege Chester Avenue home to get look at spooks. A crowd of 1,500 persons assembled last night near the home of James Harris, a fireman of number 14 Hook and Ladder Company, at 1142 Chester Avenue, lured by the report that the house, which is known to neighbors as the Shimmying Cottage, is the scene of frequent visits by a spook. For hours, they crowded about the place, and the street for blocks was lined with automobiles. A squad of police, which had been called by Harris, had trouble in dispersing the crowd. According to neighbors, the house trembles, furniture floats about the room, and beds refuse to hold their occupants. Mrs. Harris told a neighbor, E.J. Gadges, Logan and St. Catherine Streets, he said that the shadowy image of a man often appeared on the outside wall of the house, and on one occasion, a lamp which she was carrying in search of the supernatural intruder was extinguished and the ghost tapped her on the face and arms. Vibrations caused by passing streetcars and trucks were given by some the reason for the actions of the house, but the theory was disproved when the house refused to shimmy upon the passing of vehicles. News of the ghostly visits leaked out to the neighbors, and for the last several nights, hundreds of visitors have thronged the scene to catch a glimpse of the spook. The Harrises now say that they had rather be annoyed by the supernatural visitor than by the crowds of curiosity seekers. The very next day, there was a follow-up article about this haunted house in the Courier-Journal. It read, Spooks fail to spook at haunted cottage. 2,000 go unsatisfied. Police hard put to it as they wrestle with the curious throng. The police had difficulty last night in holding back the crowd of 2,000 persons who gathered to witness the ghost made famous by the shimmying cottage at 1142 Chester Avenue. Although a close watch was kept by the onlookers, the spook failed to put in an appearance, and the house failed to quiver, as was its reported want. For two hours, patrolmen worked in dispersing the throngs who filled a vacant lot next to the house, blocked the narrow street with parked automobiles, 
and crowded the roofs of sheds in the neighborhood, straining their necks to keep watch on the house. The family of James Harris, fireman of Number 14 Engine Company, who inhabits the alleged haunted house, complain, neighbors say, that the crowds which throng the vicinity cause them annoyance, and if the ghost attracts many more persons, a hose will be used to disperse them. Some small boys last night stirred the spectators when they threw a torpedo into the midst of the crowd. The explosion caused hundreds to make a dash toward the house as shouts of, the ghost, went up from many throats. A brick thrown to the tin roof of the house caused a near panic among the onlookers when it came clattering down. Despite the fact that the ghost is supposed to make its presence known only during the nighttime, the neighborhood gang of small boys kept watch all day, telling visitors hair-raising episodes that have occurred in and about the faded red house. Luckily for the family, the public lost interest in this haunted house pretty quickly. On August 16th, there's an article that read, Cottage spooks are idle. Ghosts fail to put on show for crowds at Harris' home. A diminishing crowd that gathered last night to catch a glimpse of anything pertaining to the supernatural at the cottage of James Harris, 1142 Chester Avenue, left the scene disappointed. Until a late hour, nothing ghostly appeared or happened, as nothing happened the night before. The shimmying cottage is fading in public interest, for a smaller crowd appeared last night. Extra police were on duty, however, due to the request of Mr. Harris, after several persons in the crowd gave vent to their disappointment by hurling stones toward the residence. One old man disputed the right of an officer to order him from the scene. I built that cottage 50 years ago, and if there are ghosts in it, I could find them, he said. Several small boys have commercialized the ghosts, it was learned last night, after police found touring parties composed of persons from other parts of the city guided to points of vantage near the cottage by youngsters of the neighborhood. It was found that the boys, for a fee, lead persons through backyards and over back fences. The last mention I could find of this haunted house was from a few months later in December of 1923, and it says, Haunted House Robbed. The cottage here of W.M. Harris, which several months ago attracted a visit from thousands of persons because of the alleged presence of ghosts, was a scene of a robbery Friday when a thief stole clothing valued at $50. I think I should mention that whenever I'm talking about house addresses and the whole story is like about a certain house, I try to be mindful of using the number and sometimes even the street name because, I mean, I know that you guys wouldn't just knock on a stranger's house and ask if you could investigate for ghosts or whatever, but I don't know. If I was listening to a podcast and I heard somebody say my address number and got that specific, I probably would feel a little like my privacy was invaded a bit, I think. And so occasionally I will slip up and, and just forget about that. But for the most part, I try not to include address numbers unless I can confirm that it doesn't exist anymore, which in this case, I'm pretty sure it does not. Um, this address would be in an alley now and the other address numbers around it still exist, but there is no 1142 that I can see. And in case you are curious, this house would have been in the Germantown Shelby Park area between Trouble Bar and Atrium Brewing. So just to give you an idea of where this happened. 
Um, but yeah, usually like in the last episode talking about Mary Langley's house on Gerard Street in Covington, I tried to be really mindful not to use the address number because that one is still there. This next one, this is a good one, from Kentucky Explorer Magazine, Volume 16, Number 6, November 2001. And I want to thank Alita Wilson from Alvaton, Kentucky. She's probably not listening to this podcast, but she her name is on the label here. So she was the original subscriber, and then I picked it up at a thrift store. Thanks, Alita. All right, it's called The Old Starch House Ghost. Did spirits of Hitler's SS henchmen really come to McCracken County, Kentucky to settle a score? Author's note. This is a true story about a two-story brick plantation mansion on Lowe's Cross Road between Paducah and Mayfield in McCracken County, Kentucky. This house has been owned by only two families since the time it was built by slave labor in 1856. The original owners, my Breckenridge ancestors, lost most of their wealth as a result of the Civil War and sold the mansion and adjoining farmland to the Starch family. These were German immigrants who fled their homeland as a result of political oppression from Adolf Hitler. And this was written by Robert G. Breckenridge in 2001. Like any good, hardworking farm family, the Starch family lived a relatively quiet existence until around 1939. Germany was feeling another political takeover, this time by Adolf Hitler. In an effort to flee this uprising, many of the Starch family escaped and came to America. All went to live with friends and relatives upon arrival in this country, including one man, known only as Martin, and his young wife, who found their way to the Starch farm. Everything went well for the first few weeks, until agents from Germany all members of Hitler's SS Corps began slipping into this country. Their purpose, along with stealing information from Uncle Sam, was to seek out and cruelly murder certain German escapees, making examples of them. As history goes, some of the SS agents found the Starch Farm one snowy January night in 1940. What followed can only be imagined, knowing now what the SS was guilty of during those times. When the visit was over, a section at the end of the hall on the second floor was walled up, concealing what was left of four adults. In the spring of 1946, heirs from the East Coast claimed the house and moved in after general repairs, with the exception of the walled-up hall on the second floor, which appeared to be a part of the house. During the first snowfall that following winter, in the dead of night, there came a banging on the door. Before the occupants could get downstairs, the front door flew open. There in the doorway were shadows of three figures dressed in black topcoats and hats to match. Next, these black figures seemed to be moving around wildly in the front room. Screams of men and women were heard like an echo. In a few moments, all was quiet except for the front door, which slammed back and forth, assisted by the wind. Closer inspection of the house revealed nothing except bloodstains on the stairway leading down the hall to the section that had been walled up years before. 
The bloodstains were as fresh as they had been six years before, yet by the next morning, they were gone without a trace. This happened again several times during the winter of 1946, but only on the nights of a fresh snow. The family inquired of neighboring families, the closest being nearly a mile away, who said there had been many strange things about that house since the family disappeared in 1940 without a trace. They all reported that several foreign people who spoke very poor English had been asking directions on how to find the starch farm one snowy winter night in January 1940. Afterwards, the family was never seen or heard from again. That spring, the heirs tore down the second floor of this century-old mansion. They were told by an old fortune teller in Paducah, Kentucky, what they would find in the wall of the hallway at the north end of the second floor. Sure enough, human remains were discovered and were then buried in unmarked graves at the back of the old farm. Until the early 1960s, the old home place stood as a one-story house. The bricks taken from the house were neatly stacked for anyone who would haul them away, but no one would take the bricks or even remove them for pay. Some used to say that when snow covered the bricks in the wintertime, passers-by along the winding country road in front of the old house could hear an eerie sound, like a scream from the past. On my last trip into the area in the mid-1960s, I drove back to see the remains of the old house to see if anyone still lived there. The old wooden bridge had washed out, and I was told that the house had burned to the ground the January before. Yes, it was snowing that night. To my knowledge today, all that remains of this once upon a time happy plantation home is one brick, two square nails, and a family photo taken when my grandmother was married in the 1890s in front of the old house. I have held that one brick up to my ears on snowy nights, and sometimes I can almost hear something from the past. However, I don't think I would ever admit to having heard a scream. Since I've never seen a ghost, personally, I don't really believe in them. I have one from the book Tales of Kentucky Ghosts by William Linwood Montell, and the story is called Child in the Cemetery from Mercer County. This ghost story was told to me by my Aunt Rosa Stevens. She's told it to her child and grandchild, her nieces and nephews, their children, and now their children's children. Her story never changes, nor is added to, nor taken from. Every time she tells it, she says she can see it like it happened yesterday. Aunt Rosa's father was a minister and was pastor of a church in Harrodsburg when Aunt Rosa was about 10 years old. My Aunt Rosa and another little girl from the church had gone home with a little girl from Sunday school to spend the afternoon. They were walking back to church that evening, and it was dusky dark. They passed an old, abandoned cemetery. The fence was broken down, and the cemetery was overgrown with weeds. You couldn't even see the graves. Everyone in Harrodsburg said it was an old black cemetery, possibly dating back as far as slave times. Aunt Rosa said they were right in front of the cemetery when a little black girl, who looked about three years old, walked over the broken fence in the cemetery and came on toward the girls. Aunt Rosa has always been able to describe this little girl over the years, including the clothes she was wearing. 
She had on a little red jumper and a white blouse. Aunt Rosa said her first thought as the girl kept walking toward them was why a little girl that small was out by herself at dark. As she got almost up to them, the little girl just disappeared. Of course, the girls were astonished and couldn't believe what they saw. Aunt Rosa said her dad had always told her to not get on the neighbor's grass, but she said that night the girls ran right through everyone's yard to get back to church. The next day, Aunt Rosa told a young boy who was a classmate about seeing the little black girl. He challenged her to go back over there with him to show him where she had seen the little girl so he could prove there was nothing there. When they arrived at the place where Aunt Rosa had seen the little girl, of course nothing was there. They climbed over the broken fence and went into the abandoned, overgrown cemetery. They saw nothing but old, old gravestones until they were almost ready to leave, and over at the very back of the cemetery was a little grave with a child-sized headstone, but the name had long since worn off. That little grave was just the size for a three-year-old girl. My aunt still tells this story just like she told it to me 45 years ago when I was about nine years old. And that story is from Connie Foster from Russell County, January 2008. Okay, last one for today. This is from the same book, and the story is called The Dissatisfied Spirit from Morgan County. In a remote section of Morgan County, deep in a woodland area, stands a crumbling old log cabin that once belonged to Uncle Davy. The land he owned was rich in timber and coal, so he decided he should make a will telling exactly how he wanted things divided when he died. This he did, and to protect and store this will and all his valuable papers in the last years of his life, he built a large wooden box about six feet long and three feet wide. It looked like nothing so much as it looked like a handmade coffin, except that it was locked with a padlock fastened with staples deep into the wood. After Uncle Davy died, the large box was moved to the loft of the old log house, still unopened because no one cared what Uncle Davy's wishes were now that he's gone. The grandson, Elijah, being the most aggressive of the descendants of Uncle Davy, just took over that old place. When he married, he brought his bride to the old log house to make it their home. Uncle Davy, being a good old soul, wished his family to share alike and not for one to hog it all. Elisha knew this, but he wasn't going to care now that Uncle Davy was dead and gone. Elisha's wife liked the workmanship of the old box, even if it was still locked and no one cared to open it. So some years later, she had it brought down. She made a seat out of it, thinking she might as well get some use out of the old thing. It seemed as though the old box was settled for good the day Elisha's wife made a seat out of it. Then it was 12 o'clock noon. Things were quiet after the meal, everybody enjoying their rest before going back to work. There was Elisha, his wife, their son, who was a strapping boy 12 years old, and a friend of the family all sitting around talking quietly. At the exact stroke of 12 on the old wall clock, the chest suddenly raised itself clear off the floor about six inches and came down with a thud to stay quiet again. Elisha's wife, being sort of sensible, 
thought the boys were pranking with them as they seemed to be closest, so she scolded them. They all said they didn't do anything. Elisha suddenly turned white as a ghost, muttering something about Grandpa and his ghost. Of course, nobody believed him. The next day, at exactly 12 o'clock, the old clock struck and the box again raised itself up six inches in the air. Always, at the exact stroke of 12 every day, the old box raised up. The family was getting scared to death and no one would go near the old box. One day, the boys decided they would try to keep the box on the floor, so they both got on top and stretched out five minutes before 12, thinking their weight would hold it on the floor. They waited, scared almost to death. At exactly 12, when the clock made the stroke, the box raised up six inches off the floor, boys and all, then was quiet again. Several people had come in to see the haunted box and saw the box jump up. Instead of being afraid now, the family seemed to enjoy the fame of Grandpa's ghost in the old box. The family lived there till they were old, but no one, no matter how brave, dared to open the box to let out Grandpa's ghost, as it continued to bounce exactly at 12. Elisha, however, would never go near the old box, and Grandpa's ghost seemed to plague him more and more as the years wore on. One night when his wife was dying, a neighbor and his wife were sitting up with her. The lamplight was dim, and the fire was down to just a bed of red coals. A large bucket of coal was sitting on the hearth. Wood was piled high on top of the coal. The neighbors sat silently, staring in the fire. Suddenly, the bucket, wood, coal, and all went up in the air about six inches and came down again with nary a stick of wood out of place. Elisha's wife was dead. With the passing of his wife, Elijah housed himself with the ghost of Grandpa till he died in the old house that was crumbling to decay. But strange enough, the old box still leaped up on the stroke of 12 to tell people that there was still a dissatisfied spirit roaming in the old home atmosphere. And that story was from Virginia Cox, as told to Helen Elva Mink, location unspecified, 1960. And it was recorded in the Leonard Roberts Collection, Southern Appalachian Archives at Berea College. I'm going to stop there for today. I hope you enjoyed those stories. I do have more that I've picked out, so there's going to be a follow-up to this episode closer to Halloween. I do have some other things in the works as well for this month, including tonight I am taking a haunted Victorian candlelit tour of the Conrad Caldwell House in downtown Louisville. It is believed to be haunted. I've never been inside before, so I'm very excited about it. And I will include some history of the building, and of course I'll talk about my experience there on an upcoming episode, so stay tuned for that. If you have any suggestions, you can email kyhistoryhaunts at gmail.com. I have a lot going on, so it has taken a while to get back to people, but I promise every time you guys email me, I do write down the suggestions. They are all on my master list. Um, So thank you all for listening. Thank you for interacting with me on Spotify. I've had so much fun with all the new features and getting to see your all's responses to the Q&As and the polls and stuff. So keep that coming. I love it. Thank you for listening. Until next time.